Today we'll conclude our sermon series on Daniel. For those of you who wished I would take on the hard passages and the latter part of the book, I have, and I'll make that available to you. I've uh, written sermon series throughout the book. I actually written a commentary on Daniel, and if you would like the commentary on the apocalyptic passages, if you'll just email me, I'll email you that commentary, and that we won't have to subject everybody to that discussion. But uh, if you're interested, I, I've thought it through, and don't mind telling you what I think. If you'll just email me, we'll get you the rest of the book of Daniel. Living in the lion's den, Daniel chapter 6. Darius tossing Daniel into the lion's den may be the most well-known story in all the Old Testament. Even a toddler is able to tell the exciting story of the ferocious felines who were unable to devour Daniel because Daniel's God delivered him. Well, let's take a closer look at this well-loved narrative. Let's, verses one and three, Daniel's success. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. The new king, who had marched into Babylon, our lesson sermon last week, was efficient. He quickly incorporated the newly acquired territory. He appointed these 120 governors, satrap, a word which means a protector of the kingdom. The term is applied in the Old Testament to numerous officials. Completing this hierarchy of the 120 governors or satraps, he had three men to whom they all reported. And amongst the three, Daniel was distinguishing himself and about to be placed in charge of the entirety of the kingdom. The purpose of these 120 satraps and these three governors above them was to make sure that the monarch would not lose any of his money to those who would steal from the king's treasury. Apparently, the new king was already aware of Daniel. That's not surprising given the fact that Daniel had been an important governing official during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a very famous king, or that Daniel's wisdom was known throughout the kingdom. His reputation was enhanced. Well, this is a third and final time that a king in Daniel's book, recognizes Daniel's giftedness and causes him to prosper. But once again, there is jealousy over these Judeans who are creating a life-threatening circumstance for themselves. You remember back in chapter 3, we had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who they were jealous, the Babylonians were jealous, and so they peered to see if they would bow before the statue, and they didn't, so they were cast in the fiery furnace. Well, now again, those inhabitants of the land are jealous over these foreigners who are getting places of prominence, and so they make 
the king pass a law. Look at 4 through 9. The king signs his first degree. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. As much as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. These men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. No king established the injunction and signed the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, that it may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Our hero's character is above and beyond reproach. The jealous manipulators have to look to Daniel's daily prayer life to find a possible area of accusation. Knowing Daniel's devotion, the other leaders correctly conclude that Daniel will deny the king's decrees before he ceases to worship the God that he adores. The envious entourage approaches the king as a group. Verse 6 should be translated this way. These commissioners and satraps came thronging before the king and spoke to him. There was a lot of pressure on the king. They thronged in there in the divine throne room and they were putting pressure on the king. He didn't know what they were up to. He hadn't associated this with Daniel. It's a mob scene. It's a political push. Now any man who prays or makes petition. To any man or God beside you, O Darius, will be cast into the lion's den. Well, during this 30-day period, no one could pray to any man. Now, why would you pray to a man? Because priests were in between the gods and the people, and you prayed to the priest, the priest would place it in front of the God. So ultimately, they were praying to the gods. You can't pray to any priest who takes it to the gods or any god himself. All prayers from this day for 30 days must be made to or through Darius the king himself. Now, why are these lions there? Both the Assyrians and the Persians pinned up lions, and they would keep them there for royal sport and hunting. They would let them out and go hunting them. It was a a cruel sport, a way to capture wild game, to be able to be killed by the royalty. It was either a natural cave or a man-made pit. But the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked. We're seeing that on Wednesday night with the study of Esther when we have Esther and Mordecai and King Xerxes, that the law of the Medes and Persians, once a Mede-Persian king makes a law, he himself is not even exempt from the law that he proclaims. Well, Daniel's accusers planned his death in verses 10 through 16. Now, when Daniel knew, verse 10, that the document was signed, he entered his house 
Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying, giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that if any man who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast in the lion's den? The king answered and said, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then as soon as the king heard his statement, he was deeply distressed. And he set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to king, Recognize, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians. That no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Now, the narrative shifts away from the court of the king and to Daniel's own house. Despite knowing the consequences that awaited anyone who might disregard the royal decree, Daniel, without hesitation, continues his prayer and his praises to the God that he loves and worship. Now, Daniel could have easily equivocated. I mean, it's not like bowing down to a statue like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He could have said, I'll just pause my worship for 30 days. He could have made that decision. He could have said, I will continue my prayers and my praise, but I'll do it in the inner chamber where I will not be seen. But Daniel didn't even deliberate. Daniel had a rhythm of worship in his life, and Daniel was a man of integrity. He went to the same place and sang the same songs in a foreign land. It, without inner turmoil, Daniel decided he would still worship his God. There are two questions that pop up in this part of the text. Why, why did he turn towards Jerusalem? And why did he pray three times a day? Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple, in 1 Kings 8, we read these words. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. By the time of Daniel's day, the temple had already been torn down by the Babylonians, but nonetheless, in a posture of hope, Though it wasn't required of Jews, Solomon had said it. In a posture of hope, Daniel turns towards Jerusalem, though the temple's not there, and looks to a hope with a future. And Jews weren't required to pray three times a day, but the psalmist did say, Evening, morning, and noon, I will cry out to thee, O God, and you will hear. In fact, some scholars think that it was during this exilic period, during the Babylonian rule, that the Jews picked up the practice of praying three times a day. Well, knowing Daniel, to faithfully be a monotheist, a, a worshiper of only one God, the conniving commissioners and the satraps found Daniel just as they expected. They could find nothing wrong with his books or his personal life, his accounting, his integrity. The only way we'll have to look to his worship to hold him guilty. Well, 
well aware of the king's fondness for his Judean colleague. Before they mentioned that Daniel was the offender, they reminded the king, O king, don't you remember? You signed the law, the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed, O king. If anyone was found praying to or through anyone but you, they go to the lion's den. Do you remember that? And finally the king says, it is so, is the law of the Medes and the Persians. Well, Daniel's the guilty one, they tell him. He's unfaithful to you, O king. He prays to the God of his people three times a day. Darius finds himself deeply distressed at this news, verse 14. This distress probably comes from a complex combination of things. Well, he's probably going to lose the wisest man in all of his kingdom. He was personal friends with Daniel and realized that his own ego had put him in a bad place with the wisest one in the land. He's probably angered with these conniving governors who have manipulated the monarch into doing harm to his choice administrator. So verses 16 through 21, which Gay read to you, he has a hard night. At first, during the early hours of the evening, the king Darius tries to think of a way, a clause, a way to break the contract, a way to get out, a way to keep Daniel from the lion's den. He worked hard trying to find an escape clause, but there was none, verse 14. And then he confessed that his greatest desire was that Daniel's God, that Daniel's God would be able to deliver Daniel from the lion's den. I pray that he can. Then he spent the entire of the night sleepless and fasting, refused any other entertainment. Then oddly enough, this pagan king who did not worship Yahweh, did not know the God of Daniel, he awakens early. He, after that sleepless night, at the first sign of daylight, he runs to the lion's den and he shouts out, Oh, Daniel, was your God able to deliver you? Pause of silence. It must have seemed like it lasted forever. Oh, Daniel, is the God that you worship, was that God able to deliver you from the lions? After that pause, Daniel shouts out, almost like an echo, Oh, King, live forever. What he's saying when he shouts, O king, live forever, is my God, in fact, was able to deliver me from the lion's den. Darius identifies Daniel's God as a living God. Look at verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. They've not harmed me as much as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king. I have committed no crime. The king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the lion's den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel's delivery is described much like that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's angelic involvement. There's a divine creature that stops the mouths of the lions like the creature that stopped the heat of the fire. In fact, Hebrews 11 has an interesting play on these two occurrences in Daniel. We read in Hebrews 11 that God's great heroes by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, 
obtain promises, shut the mouths of lions and quench the power of fire, bringing together Daniel 6 and Daniel 3. And both the story of the fiery furnace and of the lion's den. There is angelic intervention for the faithful few who will trust God and refuse to give in to the ways of the pagan culture. There's this continual and striking testimony to Daniel's character. Verse 4, he's described as faithful. He's beyond negligence or corruption, verse 4. He's a faithful devotee to Yahweh in both his prayers and praise, verse 10. He's innocent in God's sight in this passage, verse 22. And he trusts in his God, verse 23. Verse 24, we have the demise of his accusers. Look at it. The king gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, their wives in the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Those who have been seeking for the demise of Daniel, those who manipulated the monarch, now find themselves part of the lion plan. Now, as Westerners, we like to think of individuality, but there's often times in Scripture where families are punished for the crimes of individuals, despite the fact that the prophets of God spoke against this, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the command comes not from Daniel, but rather from a pagan king who felt manipulated. Lest you think that it wasn't divine intervention, that the lions were well-fed or they were too old or weren't hungry or didn't care. You notice before they even hit the bottom of the pit, the lions pounce and devour Daniel's enemy. The story concludes with the king's praises, 25 through 28. Then Darius the king wrote to all the people's nations and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. You remember in Daniel chapter 5, the pagan idols could not hear. He is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius. I would translate it this way. In the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Two names, one man. The story of Daniel. Several things that jump out in this miraculous, angelic rescue. That even Daniel's enemies concluded that he was such a man of integrity that he was beyond reproach. That even Daniel's enemies testify he's such a man of integrity that he's beyond reproach. What would your enemies say about you? Would those that don't even like you have to say, you know, I don't care for her, but I'll tell you this, she's a woman of integrity. You know, I don't like him. His personality is not my cup of tea, but I'll tell you this. He lives his life as a man of his word. Would your enemies, would your competitors, would your foes have to join your friends and say that you're a person who lives a life of integrity? 
according to God's word. There's a second thing I noticed. The worshiping God was part of Daniel's DNA. No matter the law, the Medes and the Persians, no matter the declaration of the lion's den, Daniel was going to be faithful in worshiping his God. He didn't blink. He didn't equivocate. He didn't even think about it. Daniel went to the same place, saying the same prayers, singing the same praises. Worship was part of the DNA of Daniel. How about you? Are you in God's house so faithfully and rhythmically that when you miss, doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right? Because worship is part of your rhythm of your life. And like Daniel, you can be counted upon to be present and to sing praises to the God you love. Thirdly and finally, the thing that stands out to me is that Daniel's God is a living God. Throughout the Old Testament, we had this emphasis that God hears the cries of his people, that he is a living God, a powerful God. He's able to hear and respond to the cries and the prayers of his people. Not like the pagan gods made of wood and metal. And even this pagan king who worshiped the idols has to declare that Yahweh, the God of Daniel, the God that delivers from the lion's den, is a living and true God. Do you realize today that you worship a living and true God who hears your prayers, who cares about your pleas, and responds to the cries of his people. Let's pray. Oh God, every man and woman, boy and girl in this room, that someday will be challenged. They'll be pushed by the culture around them to deny their God and the worship of their God. They'll be tempted to equivocate, to vacillate, to walk away from the way and the word of God. I pray today that we all dare to be like Daniel. That doing the right thing to honor our God will be our way too. And God, I pray that your people, that each of us would live our lives in such a way that even our competitors and foes would have to say, I can tell you this. He's a man of integrity. She's a woman who keeps her word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.